Okay, we're back. Welcome back from commercial break. It's our faculty, please take your seat. <laughs> Call them out by name. Ken yeah. Sherman, sit down. Yo, yo. <laughs> All right. What it do? <laughs> Nothing. That's right. No love. So thank you very much for your talk, Dr. Nagy. That was wonderful. And are there any questions? For those of you who are still talking and missed it. Okay. Thank you. Welcome back. Um, our next speaker is our co-moderator, Dr. Susanna Nagy, who, born and raised in Maryland, uh, became a turtle during her undergraduate years uh, at University of Maryland, went to Johns Hopkins for medical school, and then to Duke, where she has remained, so she keeps drifting south. Um, she, as a fellow, she got really interested in hepatitis C, and uh, at that time it was mostly run by the GI folks. and. Um, she kind of paved the way in the ID division there to take this over, and it's really paid off well for them and for the rest of us. Um, Susanna's going to review the clinical trial data uh, for the existing agents, and so it'll pick up where Dr. Dietrich left off. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I think I'm off mute. Um, all right. So for the next 30 minutes, hopefully we're going to kind of um, get down by case on a case-level basis to the ins and outs of the Phase three registration trials for both bisepravir and telaprevir. And uh, I think actually this follows really nicely after Dr. Dietrich's talk to try to apply some of the data um, on, on the patient level. This is a HCV mono-infected patient that we'll be discussing. <clears throat> so I, the, my intro slide really is just to show you a summary of what I think, some of what you've seen already this morning and then what I think will, will follow. But I think that this is really important um, uh, uh, thing to consider when we make decisions clinically about treating patients, and that's that we know what we had before and what those response rates were, which were not great. We know that the first FDA-approved DAAs provide us something, specifically maybe for certain patients, but that ultimately knowing that one interferon sparing cure is real, um, and that it actually is not as far away as we thought is critically important as we make medical decisions about whether we delay therapy for patients or whether we treat them now. Um, and I think what has also been very, very interesting for our co-infected patients is though as before with standard of care, co-infected patients appeared to have poor responses to interferon-based therapies. At least with our first phase two studies with telaprevir and bisepravir, it would maybe appear that these more potent direct-acting antivirals level the our HIV-infected patients, and we hope that we see that that data continues as we move into the interferon-sparing realm. So we are going to start off with a case. This is a 52-year-old man of African descent. To your clinic after his PCP, who was very up on the recent CDC recommendations, um, went ahead and screened him because he was born between the years of 1945 and 65. And actually, having now seen this in at least one patient at Duke, he was very upset. Um, this is a, a guy who um, did not consider himself at risk for this and now has been identified as, um, a, as infected. His other uh, at-risk screening for his HIV, ELISA, and surface antibodies for Hep B um, were either negative or consistent with prior exposure and or uh, immunization. So the first question is, what additional testing on referral to your clinic for this patient which if you haven't had one yet, you're going to, um, would, you, would you do? So I'm gonna go ahead and start the clock here and say, would you get an HCV RNA, a genotype, IL-28B genotype that we heard about this morning, a liver biopsy, all of the above, or some combination of the above? 
I know, I should not make tests. Um, so <laughs> so uh, I think uh, you could argue for really any of these, I would, I would say. So I, th I certainly think that for certain, some combination of the above. Um, and specifically, I think a lot, of you hone in on, a lot of you hone in on the fact that you first must show that he has chronic infection and that this is going to happen, right? We know that 20 to 30% of these patients can spontaneously clear. And as we start testing this larger cohort, are we going to find that there are going to be some, some false positives here as well as we expand our screening? Um, and that may well be the case. We don't know yet. And so, um, so certainly this is important. And as we move through the case, we'll learn how these other things become part of the clinical care for this patient. So I think very appropriate answers. So we so do we get back his hep C RNA. He has an RNA of 5.4 million, not unexpected, and he's genotype 1A. So as you're sitting in front of this patient talking about possible therapies, what SVR do you quote him? Um, as we do like to talk about patient-tailored therapies, um, you know, do, 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 you, uh, do you give him uh, an answer of 70%, 40 to 50%, 25%, 15%? Um, these are general rounding numbers. So a third of you say 70%. A majority of you say 40 to 50%. So I think this is a group that knows some of this phase three data pretty well. Um, and then some of you are a little, little more pessimistic, but not necessarily inappropriately so. All right, so let's turn to the, the data. So if we look at the two studies, so the SPRINT was treatment-naive, genotype 1 patients um, with bocepravir. And then we'll turn to the, to the telapavir data. So if we look at this, it actually was a stratified study by self-reported race, um, patients of non-African descent versus African descent. And you can see that the numbers that we would quote is somewhere close to 70% cure rate for all comers, but that this definitely differs depending on some other baseline <laughs> factors. Um, and that you can see for response-guided therapy, in blue is response-guided therapy, meaning those patients were able to have shortened courses of therapy um, versus um, actually going for a full 48 weeks of treatment. And then if we look at the patients of African descent, very clearly you can see that there's a difference. So that our patients of African descent get pretty good bang for the buck when they go from the 10% that they may have been quoted before these drugs were available, but there's still a disparity here. And then it may appear that they may even benefit from a longer course of therapy, something that Dr. Diedrich alluded to earlier. So if we look at the advance, which was the initial phase three for telaprevir, um, you can see that, again, cure rates are somewhere around 70%. I think we all kind of estimate 70% across the board. We can't compare between trials, obviously. Um, I, I will mention that this study did look at an eight-week course of therapy of telaprevir, eight weeks of triple combination, followed by the additional PEG and RIBA. And while there was a slight difference, um, ultimately, it appears that you get a lot of bang for the buck if your patient can make it through eight weeks. And so for those of you who are really struggling to get your patients through those last four weeks, you can feel pretty good that every week beyond they benefit, but the biggest benefit is in the first eight weeks. So now let's look um, at race and ethnicity for the telaprevir data. And again, you can see that a patient of African descent, there's a difference. Um, a huge improvement from the standard of care. As a matter of fact, they probably benefit more compared to the standard of care with the addition of telaprevir. But still, there is a disparity. Um, not so much noticed in the Latino group as we had seen previously with the pagan riba data. And then we get into the genotype 1A versus 1B, and this again, Dr. Dietrich alluded to, so he was um, you know, trying to, try to get ahead of me on this one. Um, but we can see that very clearly before, we didn't really think of genotype 1A versus 1B as being important. As a matter of fact, I don't know for you, but for most of our clinical labs, they didn't even um, to tell you whether it was a 1A or 1B, they just said genotype 1. But now we do know that at least with 
triple combination therapies. Um, as we get, it's going to be the same story for any baseline predictor. The more potent your regimen is, um, and the higher the cure rates, the less these things are going to matter. But for now, genotype 1As and light blue do appear to have lower SVR rates. This is driven by higher rates of resistance and a biologic breakthrough. Um, and so is important as you're thinking about those baseline predictors for therapy. So what length of treatment with this patient that you're sitting down with would you inform him is most likely that he will require? Is it 24 weeks? Is it 48 weeks? Or at this point, do you need more information to be able to truly give him a patient individualized uh, length of treatment? Yep, so many of you say 48 weeks, and that may be in part driven by the Mesopotamia data that where I said that African descent patients may need a longer course of therapy. But I think ultimately the real answer here is you need more information, um, especially based on uh, if this patient ultimately had cirrhosis. Obviously, we do not treat cirrhotics for less than 48 weeks at this point with our current uh, triple combination therapies. So, uh, so let's talk about that. So um, the, this is from the SPRINT2 data, and I think this also, so this is looking at race. Uh, that patients of African descent were less likely to meet that ERVR criteria. So it is important with this patient for him to understand that his risk is higher than a European descent patient of requiring a year of treatment. Um, but that ultimately, if he is one of those folks who meets criteria with the ERVR, his chance of cure is very, very high. And that is actually very, very good news. The, I, I will say that the numbers here are obviously very small. So in this cohort, 52 patients of African descent among the 368 patients in the study. This continues to be a major weakness for us uh, with clinical trials. So the telaprevir eliminates study, I'm actually gonna breeze through because that actually was a slide I should have deleted. So when we talk about other predictors of response to therapy, there are several, and I think this becomes very interesting. This morning we talked about the lead-in phase um, and how interesting that was and why it ended up that Bisabibir required a lead-in phase. But what we have learned from that is that the lead-in phase can really help you understand one's ability to achieve a cure with triple combination therapy with bosepravir. So what you can see here is in light blue are patients who had a less than one log decline in viral load at week four, just as you're going to add that bosepravir on. The dark blue are patients who had a greater than one log decline, okay? And we look here at patients who got 48 weeks of treatment with peg and riba, response guided therapy with triple combinations, or a full 48 weeks with no response guided therapy. And you can see very, very clearly that patients who had a greater than one log decline had a very nice response with the addition of bosepravir. But that ultimately, if you did not have a greater than one log decline, your chance of cure, even with the addition of bosepravir, was only 30% if you did response guided and only 40% if you did a full year of treatment. What is also very, very important, even though we don't necessarily understand the full um, repercu uh, repercussions of this is these patients all develop resistance. And so it really does help you understand, I think many, t many people have used this term essential monotherapy, where now that you're adding this on, if you have poor interferon responsiveness, then that, in, that, that DAA is not as protected by that interferon. And so you really have to make a decision at this four-week time point, are you going to add bosepravir or not? And that becomes the severity of their liver disease, do they have to be treated now, those sorts of discussions that you probably would have at the patient at baseline. Um, many of us also use this in our cirrhotic patients, the obviously compensated cirrhotics, to, 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 to kind of do a, a hep C, we call it a liver stress test. How well do they do? How much does their platelet count drop in this four weeks? How well do they tolerate this? And are you going to add on that additional drug or not in terms of safety? So it's become a pretty useful 
um, milestone, and, and I practice uh, in the VA quite a bit where bocepivir is actually um, the, uh, the formulary drug for the VA system. Um, so other predictors of response, this actually gets into the whole IL-28 thing. So again, it costs about 300 to 350 bucks. Um, our European colleagues were dismayed by that because in, in Europe, um, where the, I guess the patent is not as applicable, it costs, you know, like $5 or something. Um, it's like everything else, the, the Europeans are well ahead of us in many ways, um, and not just fashion. Um, so if we look at the... If we look at the IL-28, though, this is where it does become important for a patient who really is trying to make a decision about starting therapy. If you are IL-28CC, <laughs> your chance of having a greater than one log decline by week four is very, very high. It's almost 100 means you're then in that pile of people who have an 80% chance of cure. So this does matter in helping you understand um, whether or not, what, what, that, what that person sitting in front of you's chance is, but, but it doesn't work in and of itself. So the accuracy of this test by itself is only about 65%. So you have to include it with the other things at baseline, race, ethnicity, level of fibrosis, to really make it a useful test. Um, but, and you can also say that even TTs do benefit, but, the, but there's, a, there's a huge difference. And you know, many patients coming in the door are looking for cure rates of 80 to 90%, right? They, they have big expectations. And so this is really important from a patient expectation standpoint, which I think ultimately helps you get the patient through therapy if they decide to proceed. Okay. So this is very similar. It shows that patients who were IL-28CC were more likely to achieve that ERVR, and a large majority of them were, were more likely to go on so, um, to, to, to uh, achieve cure in, 70, in 24 weeks. I think you could tell a CC that it's more likely they'll need 24, only 24 weeks of therapy, but again, that's not perfect. So let's go back to the patient. So you um, now do a liver biopsy on this patient, which I think most of us would argue um, in this day and age we treat hep C as a liver disease. Um, uh, because of the uh, courses of therapy are still long, there are still ma many side effects, and we don't have a near 100% cure rate as of yet. And so we treat it as a liver disease, which means staging this patient and determining what their risk is of progression of disease. And that's how we make a decision on therapy. In this patient's case, he's a child PUA, and you've heard lots about that now. So how long are you going to treat this patient? And I think you guys all know the answer to this. So use response guided therapy, 24 weeks, 48 weeks, or 72 weeks if the patient can tolerate. Yep. So a majority of you say 48 weeks, and again, this patient, being a cirrhotic, both bosepivir and telaprevir package inserts clearly say that a cirrhotic patient should be treated for a full year of therapy and should not receive a response-guided therapy approach, given that it appears that they do benefit from that additional, that, that, that full year of treatment. So at this point in time, that, that is how we would proceed. And if you look at this and why this may be, um, this is actually looking at the bosepivir, again, phase three data. Um, broken down by level of fibrosis based on liver biopsy. And you can see that patients who are stage three or four, so here we have full 48 weeks of treatment, response guided therapy in red, and standard of care. And you can see there isn't a huge benefit over standard of care in these patients who have significant fibrosis. There may be some benefit, though, if they go for a full year of treatment. And so this is some of that kind of post hoc analyses that really helped kind of make decisions about how to proceed for these patients. And again, also showing, however, that ultimately the best predictor of ability to achieve a cure is on treatment viral kinetics. So this actually then takes you and says, so if you are stage three, four, which is orange, green, orange, green, but you actually have a negative viral load and you meet that ERVR criteria, ultimately your chance of cure is actually very, very high. So, so it, it helps to know that all of these baseline predictors matter, but once you start treatment, there's nothing better than the on-treatment viral response. It trumps everything. 
Um, and then when we look again, so this is telaprevir breaking down by some of those baseline predictors again. So patients, again, of African descent on telaprevir, big bang for the buck, but maybe a little different than patients of, of all comers combined. Um, higher viral loads don't seem to matter as much anymore. Um, and again, stage three, four takes a little bit of a hit. So just showing that, that you know, we summarize by saying 70%, but that ultimately we need to look at each patient to know what their response is going to be, because that, that still matters. I think it becomes, um, you're going to see data um, uh, in the next talk that, uh, that, that clearly as treatments, like I said earlier this morning, are 95 to 100% cure, th there's going to be no, no difference by baseline predictors. So I think this is a really nice study to talk about because we're talking about treating cirrhotic patients. Um, and uh, and co-infected patients, it becomes even more important because of the concerns for decompensation and lack of a bridge to transplant for many centers. So this is a true um, non-clinical trial data. This is actually an abstract that will be presented at ASLD. It's a follow-up to an abstract by the same group at EASL. These are all tr um, treatment-naive, uh, hep C mono-infected cirrhotics, child QA. This is the reality of how these patients do in the actual clinical setting. And you've, they, their numbers are much bigger now between EASL and ASLD. And, and what you can see is that um, adverse events are extremely common. And this is a difficult patient population to manage. So. 50%, uh, 40% have some SAE. If you look at grade three, four anemia, 10% for each drug. EPO use is over 50% for both, both groups. And this can be difficult um, to get access to for many of our patients. Um, as I feel like I fight that battle every day between you know, GCSF or EPO for someone. Transfusions are, I think, something we've all learned clinically becomes extremely, uh, is extremely difficult to arrange in the outpatient setting, and many of our sites have had to figure out how to do this because it's very common. 15% on telaprevir and 11% on bisoprevir required blood transfusion to get through treatment. Um, neutropenia, again, not as common, and you know, again, we talk about what, what, what that really means clinically as there's no evidence that it increases your risk of infection. Rash was common, and I think what's really important here is to look at the risk of death. Um, so 2% death in the telaprevir arm, 1.3%. So I, I do quote these numbers to my cirrhotics. Um, obviously, I don't, I don't treat decompensated cirrhotics. I, I don't know that we would recommend anyone do that without a transplant um, uh, evaluation and bridge, but, um, but this is a reality for, for our patients, and we have to know about it. So what do you tell this patient is the minimum amount of time a treatment um, the minimum amount of time he would get treatment before we knew what his chance of response was. So for those of you here this morning, we like to see a 100% um, correct answer. Um, and uh, we don't, I guess that's part of the, the, the thing. <laughs> Shut up, Nagy. Um, okay, so the answer here would be we do not know which drug we're giving him, and it depends on which drug we're giving him, right? So for those of you here this morning, remember that very complicated schema with the big stop signs, and for some patients it's four weeks, which is telaprevir, for some patients it's 12 weeks, which is bisoprevir, and so it does depend, and this again leads to the complexity of managing these patients in the clinical setting. So now we're going to summarize that. So I apologize for the ones this morning. This is a, a repeat slide, but I think it's always good to go over a little bit. So when we're talking about um, Response-guided therapy is different for the different drugs. Again, I know this is not in your packet, but it will be online um, because I've stacked these slides. Um, so, so again, EVR um, it, for telaprevir is undetectable by week 4 and 12, shortened course to 24 weeks, and that our stopping rules are different. So at, at 4 weeks, you have to have a viral load less than or equal to 100,000. Again, reiterating the issue of risk of resistance, and that if your patient um, meets this criteria but is not undetectable, that you would not want to wait until week 12 to repeat that viral load, that you would want to repeat them at least every two weeks until you have an undetectable level because of a slow decay would increase the risk of having a breakthrough um, or, or, uh, or rebound. 
Um, so week 12, they have to have a viral load less than or equal to 1,000. They have to be undetectable by week 24. So again, compare this to the bocepravir. If you're going to use bocepravir in treatment, EVR is undetectable by eight weeks and then undetectable through week 24. Response-guided therapy, if you're treatment naive, to end at 28 weeks. If you are treatment naive and you don't meet response-guided therapy criteria, you go 36 of triple therapy followed by an additional 12. So extremely complicated. Again, I mean, if you're using this a lot, it's going to become second nature. But ultimately, if you're not, I mean, you know, these are cheat sheets and they're very helpful to, to, to remind you of what the endpoints are. For the stopping rules, because of the use of that lead-in phase, Four weeks would be way too early to make a decision. So ultimately, the, the stopping rules are 12 and 24 weeks. But this is different than with Pagan Raba and that EVR that we used to think about, the early virologic response criteria, which used to be greater than 2 log 10 decline. Now you have to be have a viral load basically less than 100. And again, if you are not undetectable by this time point, more frequent viral load checks until they get to undetectable would be critically important. You wouldn't want to just wait 20, 12 more weeks to, to repeat their viral load. Okay, so now let's move a little bit into the side effect profile of these medications. So what adverse effects, as you're sitting there talking, down, talking with the patient, are you going to discuss um, with these medications? As you're weighing the risk and benefits of the different meds, this obviously is a critically important part to talk about. So is it puritis, anemia, rash, um, is it, well it says B and C, but I think that means two and three. Anemia, rash are all of the above. So there you go. So it is all of the above. Um, so. Um, how many of you have, have, have treated these patients and had to deal with some of the side effects? A lot of you. Okay. So this is a well-versed group. So, you know, I think puritis was something that was not as talked about, but, um, but as we've now gotten into clinical practice and, and sitting down with the patients, realize that this can be a very disturbing symptom for the patient. As most of you probably know, this is primarily can occur in, as in the anorectal area. So anorectal puritis is an extremely uncomfortable thing for these patients to deal with. It does seem like, especially with telaprevir, if they um, take the drug with a high-fat diet, that seems to decrease the risk of having that sort of symptom. Um, and so as much as my patients hate peanut butter, they tend to manage to, to, to uh, avoid the anorectal puritis when they use a lot of peanut butter. Um, and obviously, anemia and rash being very common um, with these drugs. So I, the next slide is just going to break down the side effect profile. What I tried to do was combine all the mono-infection trials and then all of the co-infection trials, for which we clearly have very different numbers in terms of safety for, the, for these two populations at this point. But what it does show, compared to the standard of care, is that you know, puritis is very common, rash is very common, anemia is very common. But then our co-infected patients, at least so far, we certainly don't see that co-infected patients have more severe adverse events, which is what was maybe the case with pagan riba. Um, and that indeed, maybe even with some of these, they seem to have a little less. And I think the rash is one of the things that many of us who are treating co-infected patients, I just haven't had to deal with it, um, a severe ra as much a severe rash with the co-infected group. Um, anemia is a driving factor for both of these drugs. And again, you saw that data from the Cupic study where you know, EPO being required, blood transfusions, is probably one of the biggest limiting side effects for us in terms of managing these patients clinically. Um, and I hope that we get into some of the management, and I, I believe that, that we do later in the day with regards to a dose reduction and the data for that. And I think uh, Dr. Sherman will get into that very nicely at, at the end of the day. So in this patient, if this patient had HIV co-infection, what would be the most limiting issue for initiating DAAs on him? Would it be that HIV-infected patients have poor response to therapy? Would it be increased adverse effects, drug interactions, all of the above? Yeah. Um, so 
I would argue that the answer here really is drug interactions. At least with the DAAs, it would appear from the phase two studies that HIV-infected patients have the same response rates and that maybe we're going to level the playing field for HIV co-infected patients. And that indeed, from the slide that I just showed you, that they do not have increased adverse effects. So drug interactions is a big issue for our HIV co-infected patients and really to me that one of the primary players when it comes to just making it a bit more complicated for our co-infected um, uh, uh, patients. So, and I know there's gonna be a very nice uh, uh, summary of all of the drug-drug interaction data coming in another talk. So I'm not gonna focus on that too much, but I, what I am gonna focus on now in the last few slides um, are the two phase two studies. Um, this was brought up by, by um, one of the uh, audience members um, that have been done and presented uh, um, uh, uh, nationally with regards to co-infection. Um, and this really gets into the ins and outs of if you're treating a co-infected patient now, um, what can you extrapolate from the mono-infected data and what can't you extrapolate? So this is the telopravir study in, in co-infected patients. This um, was uh, presented by Dr. Dietrich at Croy, and actually this is not my updated slide set, which is too bad, but, um, but uh, Dr. Solkowski will be presented this final data at ASLD in a couple of weeks. What I can tell you is Oh, maybe that's what that's the next slide, and hopefully I have that updated data. So what this, what I think the important points here are: one, there were some patients who were not on antiretrovirals. There were patients who were on antiretrovirals and driven by the drug-drug interaction data. It was a favarin-based or adazanavir-based regimens. That it's triple combination therapy, just like you saw in mono-infection. But the big difference is there is no response-guided therapy arm here, um, and uh, and so that means that if you are treating a co-infected patient today outside of a clinical trial, then you need to be treating them for a year, regardless of what their level of fibrosis says, their prior response, et cetera. So, okay, I do, sorry, I'm clearly confused. Um, so this is the SVR24 data um, from, the, uh, from this study, um, and this is gonna be presented at ASLD, and what you can see here is that uh, we have cure rates in all comers of 70% in co-infected patients, small numbers, but I think very reassuring numbers for us, that there was no difference across treatment groups, whether you were in a fabrin, zetazanavir, or no antiretrovirals whatsoever, and that this was clearly superior to the standard of care, which came in at exactly 40%, which I think we probably would argue is a little higher than what we maybe would see in um, the co-infected cohorts, and certainly better than what we saw in the ACTG interferon ribavirin studies, um, and what that means in the long term, we don't know, but clear benefit uh, for our co-infected patients. So when we talk about the Phase two for both separavir and co-infected patients, it's a similar story. Lead-in phase is used, as we discussed this morning, um, and again, no response-guided therapy arm. So you're getting lead-in, and then it's 44 weeks of triple combination therapy with bosepravir. And, um, and, and Dr. Sokowski presented this at CROI, uh, this most recent CROI, and again, looking at the SVR12 data, a 60% cure rate in our co-infected patient compared to a 26% cure rate in the standard of care arm. Probably something much more from a number standpoint of standard of care, exactly what we'd expect in the co-infected cohort. A huge benefit here for our co-infected patients with the addition of a single DAA. Um, so this is where it gets into, and I, and I don't know how much of this is gonna be discussed in one of the next few talks, but the discussion of what um, HIV uh, drugs you can use. So it becomes very interesting with the, with the telepravir phase two, um, what was included was based on drug-drug interaction safety data. Efavirenz was allowed, raltegravir was allowed, um, adazanavir was allowed, um, or is, is an, raltegravir is now allowed in the phase three studies, and that's what's moved into phase three. With bosepravir, it was a little bit different. So the initial um, safety data suggested that raltegravir would be safe um, and that protease inhibitors would be safe based on ritonavir drug-drug interactions, and that was what was included in the phase two trial. 
After the phase two trial was um, underway, what we found was additional drug-drug interaction data commented that there was actually significant concerning possibly clinically relevant drug-drug interactions with protease, HIV protease inhibitors. However, they were already under study, and now we have that data from the phase two trial showing that these patients did very well, that there was not a higher risk of breakthrough for HIV, regardless of what drug regimen you were on, we had the same number of breakthroughs in those patients, whether they were on um, HIV protease inhibitors or not. And so ultimately, as we move forward into phase three, PIs will now be included in the ACTG5294 study so that we can get more safety data. There is an abstract, I will point you to an abstract in ASLD that's being presented by the phase two study group looking at AUROCs of bocepervir in the co-infected patient populations on HIV PIs. They had a 20% lower AUC, but there was no difference in SVR. So this all gets into the idea of looking at PK numbers and trying to understand what that means, but ultimately what matters to us is SVR um, and, and ultimately, it doesn't appear that there's a huge difference. And so we're learning about the safety of these drugs, but if you're trying to treat patients off-label currently, I think you have to be very careful to make sure you're in line with the safety information that we currently have. <coughs> so this now gets us into the guidelines that were um, just released in the past six months, um, which is a, a pretty amazing uh, update to the recommendations for HCV therapy over infected patients. And I imagine by now almost everyone has seen this, but ultimately, you know, the, 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 um, the guideline committee came forth to say that patients with HIV co-infection should be considered for therapy, but that ultimately you need to follow the current safety available, and this has not changed all that significantly, but you're going to see a few more drugs have been added on um, with the recent, in the re recent resistant um, uh, 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 um, workshop, and, and those will be discussed later on. But for now, the guidelines reflect that if a patient is not on ART, you can use either bosepavir or tilaprovir. If they are on raltegravir, you can use either bosepavir or tilaprovir. But that ultimately, if they're on adazanavir or efavirenz, you, you need to, at this point, use the drug for which we have the most safety data, which is tilaprovir. Um, and again, I think with other HIV protease inhibitors, although we have that safety from the phase two, given the now concerning drug-drug interactions, I think many people would argue that we need the 5294, ACTG 5294 to really confirm for us safety for these drug-drug combinations. And they, there's, there's quite a bit more text here with regards to if you have a patient who is on a more complex regimen, how do you make a decision? And ultimately, I guess I would argue that this is where a treatment in a multidisciplinary center uh, with an ID provider and a hepatologist um, is going to be critically important to make the right decision for your patient. Um, and, and that becomes, what is their risk? Were they previously treated? What was their response? And, and are you going to get more bang for the buck now, or are you going to get more bang for the buck waiting? And I think that is actually probably the more important take home for this, is making sure that you're treating patients who need treatment based on their level of liver disease. And then the risk of trying to do something that's a, a little bit um, more um, off of the beaten path is gonna, is gonna, I think, play out a little better. And so um, just a summary slide here. I think ultimately in a co-infected patient, I think what we would argue is, um, and I think really in a mono-infected patient, knowing what's coming, um, if you have a patient who has minimal fibrosis, um, uh, delaying therapy makes a ton of sense. There are certain situations where it may not make sense. Someone who's going to lose their insurance in six months or 12 months and things like this where you want to make sure you get them access to drug. But otherwise, knowing what's coming, delay in therapy for patients who do not have significant liver disease, um, I think is very important. And that's where staging comes in. Liver biopsy staging or whatever you have access to in your clinical center, um, if liver biopsy is, is not feasible, then using some of the non-invasive markers, recognizing their weaknesses. I think being very careful about candidate selection at this point in time, not treating decompensated cirrhotics, 
Um, again, maybe even if you're starting off with treatment, picking some of those relapsers and patients that you know are going to do well um, because they're going to be a little easier to treat. Um, and then I think the biggest thing is patient expectations and spending a lot of time at the bedside, um, educating the patient as to what the expectation should be, what are those side effects, and that sort of thing, which is going to help you and the patient get through treatment. Very close monitoring, I think, specifically with HCV RNAs until your patients have undetectable viral loads. Um, and then I think uh, certainly the take-home point from today is that the best is yet to come. Um, and so I think that is it for me. So I'm happy to take any questions. No questions. You guys are all <coughs> experts or you're bored by this point, <laughs> one of the two. All right, in the back. Yep, just if you can speak up really loud and I'll repeat the question. Very high. Right. Right. So would you do response? Right. Right. So I think, I think if you just looked at race alone, the SPRINT2 data clearly showed that a patient of African descent who meets ERVR has an 87% chance of cure, which I would say is very, very good. That doesn't take in, in, into account whether that person is TT or CC and that sort of thing. But overall, I am not saying that all of my African descent patients, blanket statement, get a year of therapy at all. But I think as Dr. Dietrich was alluding to, if you have a patient who's African descent, who's a cirrhotic, you know, those sorts of things, even with, and maybe they were a previous partial responder, these sorts of things, even if they've had a rapid virologic response, you know, it, it comes down to how well are they doing? Are they tolerating therapy when you get to that 28-week or 36-week time point and, and, and making decisions on proceeding? But I do not think race in and of itself would be a reason to say get a year of treatment. Dr. Sag. Oh, was there? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stopping rules are different than response-guided therapy. Is that maybe what we're getting at? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, so for response-guided therapy, you have to be undetectable at week four through week 12 for telaprevir and undetectable at week eight through week 24 for bosepravir. That is different than, that, that, that's making a decision to shorten therapy. That's different than making a decision to discontinue therapy because of futility. So futility rules for telaprevir are you have to have a viral load less than or equal to 1,000. If you do not, then you discontinue therapy. Um, and for bosepravir, you have to have a viral load of less than 100 by week 12 or you discontinue therapy. So yeah, so that's a very good point to make. The top part of that is response-guided therapy rules. The bottom part is futility rules and making a decision to discontinue therapy. Thank you for clarifying. All right, so uh, one more question.
course, so these, so bosepivir and telopivir are FDA approved for genotype 1 patients. So the current standard of care for genotype 1 patients, I think in this country, would be triple combination therapies. But for genotype 2, 3s at this point in time, HIV co-infected or not, the standard of care is pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Now, whether or not you treat with peg and riba for 24 versus 48 weeks, and genotype 2, 3 is probably the point of a whole other talk. Um, and certainly there are guidelines to help you make that decision. But, but yeah, this is for genotype 1 only patients. So, you know, my recommendation is for now, until you have data for response-guided therapy, which is coming from the phase threes, is that you should treat those patients for a year. I get it's hard. I have multiple relapse patients who have, were undetectable by week two, and it's really hard to convince them to go the full 48 weeks, but I would never forgive myself if uh, the data comes out later to find that, indeed, I would have done the wrong thing. So that's just me. I'm, I'm one person. We have other experts in the room who may say otherwise, um, but right now I have the podium, and that's what I say. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.